As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. I uh, have the privilege of wrapping up our summer ser- sermon series in the book of First John. Uh, I hope that you have been encouraged through our time in this letter. I know I have. Uh, as is our custom here at Christ Central, I ask that you stand uh, if you are able for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 to the end of the letter. John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, your people, that we would encounter you, the living God, and through that encounter, we would be transformed. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So as we finally come to the end of this letter, I want to begin by once again reminding you of why this letter was written. You may recall from previous sermons how we talked about the context into which John was writing. The church was in utter turmoil, facing division within, persecution from without. So John pens this emergency letter to hopefully provide some level of peace for God's people in the midst of such great turmoil. He writes it so that the church might have assurance of the truth in the midst of the storm. And as any good writer should, he at the end of his letter returns to this main point. And he concludes with one final push for God's people to be assured of the truth of the gospel. Now, before we dive into the details of what John wants us to be assured of, I want to quickly remind you of why assurance is so important. Or or stated differently, what is the danger that comes in the absence of assurance? And I had the opportunity to see firsthand why assurance is so important a few weeks ago on our family vacation. This year, we decided to take the family to the mountains where normally beach people, but we decided to mix it up this year, and while we were in the mountains, we decided to visit the famous Blowing Rock. Some of you probably have been there before. If you haven't, Blowing Rock is a touristy, scenic overlook. There's no real hiking involved. You just kind of park and walk out to this view, and what we learned quickly when we got there is that my daughter is afraid of heights. Uh, We didn't 
really know the extent of that. And this fear of heights became very apparent when we came to this suspended bridge that was hanging on the side of this mountain. And unfortunately, to get to the views that we wanted to see, we had to cross over this bridge. So there was a predicament, if you will. And we rolled up to this hanging bridge, and my daughter was like, no way, not going to do it. But through much encouragement, coaxing, I was able to convince her to stand on the mountainside of the bridge while I stood on the cliffside and to hold my hand and walk with me. And although she was terrified, she nonetheless trusted in the moment that I would keep her safe, knowing that I would never put her in harm's way. She didn't have an, there was no assurance in the bridge itself, but rather in my ability to get her to the other side. And as I was thinking about this encounter, I realized there was actually a lot at stake in that moment. Because without that assurance, that would have ruined our trip to Blowing Rock. We would have been going back to the parking lot. It would have ended rather abruptly. We would have missed out on this experience and these beautiful views that were offered. And I began to think about that in light of what John is saying here. I think that the urgency that we hear in this letter is because John is so afraid that without this assurance, in the midst of great trials and persecution, his little children, as he calls us, his beloved, might give up. They might quit the hike and go back to the car. They might walk away from their faith. Christ Central, it is my heart's desire that not a single one of you would ever walk away from the faith. I've tasted what it's like to have a dear friend, a guy that I led to the Lord and discipled, walk away from Christ. One of the most devastating things I've ever experienced. And I don't want that for myself, and I don't want that for any of you. And, and I want to caution us even more that it's, it's actually very easy to walk away and not even leave this room. How easy it is for us just to come and go through the motions and check the boxes, but we lose the passion because our assurance is dried up. We lose the taste for the king and his kingdom. And I think that we're all in danger of that. And so I, I hope and pray that you would listen this morning to what John thinks and I think we need to hear of this final charge, this encouragement this picture of what it looks like to live a Christian life that's full of assurance and what's true. Our text this morning is very clearly laid out, as you could probably hear. John has three main points he wants to leave us with at the end here, each beginning with the phrase, we know. These things that John is about to share with us are not simply things to consider. Try this. No, these are confident assertions, absolute truths, things that are not to be doubted or questioned. And what John is doing here is he's seeking to give us something to grab hold of in the middle of the storm. Some of you may have seen, you may remember the movie Twister. came about 1996. It's not a very good film, uh, but you might have seen it. Uh, it's starring Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, if you've seen the movie, you remember this scene. It's, it's actually the only memorable scene, I think, of the whole movie. But uh, So Helen and Bill, their characters are, are being chased by this tornado. It's a really reasonable 
um, plot, <laughs> and they're running through the, the woods, and they come to this pump house. And Bill's character realizes that in this pump house are these pipes, and these pipes go deep into the ground. And so he knows that if, if they can hold on to these pipes, they'll be able to make it through the tornado. And so the, the tornado comes and the whole building is taken away and yet they're anchored to these pipes and they survive the storm. I think what John is, is giving us here in chapter 5 is the pipes. He's giving us the anchors which we as Christians must hold on to in the midst of life's storms. And so now I want to I look with you at these anchors one by one. Look with me now at verse 18. John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, before we get into what this anchor is, I want to briefly address what this anchor is not. Much like in other places that we've already looked at in this letter, John is not arguing for the doctrine of Christian perfectionism, the idea that when we become a Christian, we stop sinning altogether. And one way we know for certain that is not the case here in chapter 5 is that if you were to flip back and look two verses prior, John is encouraging us to pray for brothers, for Christians who are sinning. So it would make no sense for John to encourage us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are sinning and then turn around and say, oh yeah, and Christians do not sin. So we know that's not what John is saying here. But if he's not arguing for Christian perfectionism, then what is he saying? Well, I think he's, I think he's clearly reiterating what he said in chapter 3. Let me remind you. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The key word here is practice. John is saying those who have been born of God, born again, as Daniel talked about last week, do not keep on perpetually sinning. Their life is no longer marked by the practice of sinning. I like the way the great Anglican priest John Stott says it. He says, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. So John is saying that the child of God does not keep on practicing sin, but we have to be careful here. The anchor that John wants us to hold on to is not the absence of ongoing sin. It's true, but that's not the point of verse 18. The, the anchor that John wants us to hold on to is what is the cause of that not ongoing sin? What is the catalyst, the power that gives us, what is it that gives us the ability to not continue practicing sin. Listen to the rest of the verse. But he, Jesus, who was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Church, I'm, I'm not being dramatic when I say this. For some of you, what I'm about to say is all you need to hear today. You really could leave after I finish this next point. Because if you truly believe what I'm about to say, it will forever change your life. What John is saying here is that we know that King Jesus, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, the enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, impurely powerful, impartially merciful King Jesus holds you in his hands. He holds you in his hands. Listen to how King David says this about Jesus in Psalm 121. Lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. King Jesus holds you in his hands. What this passage makes plain is that the evil one, Satan, is real. But Christians, be not discouraged. He cannot touch you. Now, wait a minute, you might say. I feel like the Bible often talks about how we're tempted by Satan. Even Jesus was tempted by Satan. How can John then say that the evil one cannot touch us? What's interesting is that John only uses this word touch one other time in his writings. It's in his gospel, chapter 20. After Jesus' resurrection and when he appears to Mary Magdalene, and there's this scene where, where Mary is overcome and she grabs hold of Jesus, and Jesus responds by saying, touch me not. Or as the ESV translates it, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And what we learn here is that this word touch is probably better translated as grab hold of, hold down. And therefore, what John is saying here is that although the evil one, he might tempt us, he will tempt us, he never gets a hold of us. He never gets us in his clutches. Why? Because King Jesus won't let him. Now, I recognize in a room this size, there are probably a number of you that are sitting there saying, that sounds really nice. That sounds great, but that's not my current experience. It doesn't feel like Jesus is holding me in his hand, but rather it feels like Jesus has left the building. And I know there's people in this room that feel that way. I, I know personally what that feels like, and I know how hard assurance is in those times. But I think if you do feel that way right now, you should be encouraged by what John is saying here because there's no question that the point of this, the reason John is writing is because there are men and women that he, he is writing to that feel the exact same way, that feel as though Jesus has left the building. And they are needing to be encouraged, needing to be reminded that they are in Jesus' hands. And John is inviting us here into the mystery of faith. Hebrews 11 kind of faith, this assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He's inviting us to be assured of things that we presently can't see, that we can't feel, but we cling to just the same. Think about my daughter on the trail. 
She had no experiential assurance that the bridge was not going to fall and that she was going to fall to her death. She didn't know that. She'd never walked across a bridge like that before. But when she took my hand, she found enough strength and care in me to cultivate conviction around what was unseen for her, what was unknown, what seemed destined to be fatal. Church, can you look back on your life and see evidence of God's faithfulness to you? Even if you don't feel it right now, can you see evidence of God's presence, of his care, of his love in your life? We cling to that in the midst of doubt and loneliness. And if you can't see that, that's the beauty of the church. You turn to your neighbor and say, can you tell me about God's faithfulness in your life, about his care to you, about his love and strength towards you? And we cling to that in the midst of not feeling it and not seeing it. That's the mystery and the beauty of faith. When we hold on to that, we find the strength to keep going or at least one step further. Which leads us to our second anchor. Look again with me at verse 19. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What we see here is not only does John want us to be aware of the positive realities in the life of the Christian, but the dangers as well. Not only are we safe in the arms of Jesus, but at the same time, John wants us to know that there is an evil one who is wreaking havoc all around us. But why does John feel the need to go here? I think that John is trying to make sure that we are looking at the world through the right lens. What do I mean? I think we can all agree that there's something wrong in this world, that it's not as it should be. Amen? I mean, you just turn on the news and we see story after story of violence and justice, hatred, abuse, tragedy, evil. So we can all agree that something is off, but why? Society has come up with various answers to that question throughout the years. Some believe that we as a society have a moral problem. You've probably heard people say, what happened to morality in America? How come the young people don't have any more morals? Where did we all go wrong? And many believe that this supposed decay in morality is the problem with the world. Some believe it's a political problem, that the reason society is so messed up is because we don't have the right people in office. If only we had the right president or Congress or mayor, then the world would be okay. Others believe that the problem is economic, that the financial inequalities that are prevalent in society are at the root of everything that is wrong with the world. And there's definitely, no doubt, there's truth in all of those statements. And there's reason to be angry and upset and saddened by those realities. But what John is saying here is that none of these get to the real root of the problem. He's saying that underneath all of the moral, political, economic issues, there is a single source that is causing all that is wrong, all that is broken, all that is evil in this world, and his name is Satan. Now, I know some of you are thinking, he doesn't really expect us to believe that, does he? I mean, it sounds like a sci-fi movie. I think that I can imagine there are many that just got uncomfortable with 
me even bringing that up. We're not supposed to actually believe that this world is being controlled, perverted, corrupted by some evil being, are we? And yeah, that's exactly what the Bible teaches over and over again. That our biggest problem is that Satan is at work destroying that which God created for good. Listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians 6. He says, for we Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jesus himself acknowledges this reality in his his interactions with Satan in the wilderness. If you remember Matthew 4, Satan takes Jesus up on a mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. How can Satan make such an audacious claim? Who does he think he is? But Jesus is acknowledging what John is saying here is true, that the world lies in the power of the evil one. We know from the text here and other places that we are from God, that we, the whole world, was created by God. And yet according to verse 19, in this moment, Satan is exercising some level of dominion on the earth. That is part of the Christian worldview. We have to recognize that as true. Now, before you get too discouraged, we also know from the book of Revelation, another book written by John, that King Jesus is going to come back and the devil will be defeated once and for all, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye, that death shall be no more, neither shall mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Amen. But what John wants us to be assured of is that right now, there is an evil one who is at work in this world. Why is it so important that we recognize that? I think that Satan's one of his greatest tactics is to conceal the fact that he even exists. This is why, if you ever read anything or watched anything on the Vietnam War, why the war was so deadly, because it was so hard to tell who the enemy was. You had this guerrilla warfare. You had people uh, in hiding, and, and you could never figure out who you were fighting against. I think that's how Satan is so good at causing destruction. Because he's in, he's in the dark. He's hiding. And we don't know who the enemy is. And if we aren't aware of who our enemy really is, we're, our attack will always be misguided, and it will fail. But if we can know, as John tells us, who we are up against, then we can have a chance to defeat the evil one. We can aim our attacks not at politicians or morality or money, but at Satan and his efforts to steal, kill, and destroy. We can attack head-on the work of Satan's hands. Everything that corrupts what God has declared in his word to be true and good and beautiful, that's the work of Satan. And so we can fight for educational reform and equality. We can fight for affordable housing and more jobs in our city and justice and and, uh, criminal justice reform. We can fight for 
peace and hope and prosperity and community and equality, knowing that every victory that we win is a stinging defeat to the evil one because we've got him in our sights. We know what it means to wage war against this evil one. I want to shift to our third and final anchor. Look with me now at verse 20. John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Here John finishes with a bang. And he's giving us really what is underneath the first anchor and the second anchor. He's made plain that the world is in the power of the evil one, and yet God's children are safe in the arms of Jesus. But how can this be? How is this possible? We find the answer here in verse 20. He says, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. What John wants us to know is that the reason these things are true is not because of anything that we have done, but because King Jesus has come and revealed himself to us. We hear this idea echoed over and over again from Jesus himself, Matthew 11. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John wants us to know that Jesus has opened our eyes so that we might see and believe the truth. And through this knowledge of him, we have been set free from the power of the evil one. And when we believe that, when we know that, the result is humility, not pride. Make a bold statement here in light of what John's saying if as a Christian you are not asking the question, why me, then you don't understand the gospel because it's God's amazing grace through his revelation of himself to us that has set us free. But not only have we been given this new understanding as the text reveals through Jesus, we are now in him, in God. As we've mentioned before in previous sermons, the analogy that God often uses of this union is adoption. To be in God is to be brought into his family, to be made a son or daughter. And the end of this verse is clear. This adoption is permanent. Because the God of the Bible is not just life, but he is eternal life. Church, do you know this to be true? Do you know that you've been adopted by the Father, brought into his family, and that the adoption is irreversible? Because if you don't, the storms are going to own you. They're going to own you. But if you're rooted, if you're anchored in this reality that God has set his love upon you, he's called you my beloved, and that will never change. You are anchored to those pipes, and you can make it through the storm. I want to conclude with verse 21. What appears to be one of the most misplaced verses in all of Scripture, like the scribe was working on a different book and he accidentally slid it in here. 
No other letter ends like this in the New Testament. They all end with peace be with you, God be with you, grace be with you. No, John just drops a bomb and then walks out. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And although it appears to be out of place, I really think that this is the perfect ending to this letter. Now, before we unpack what John is getting at, I want to first define this word idol. Listen to this definition. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, an idol is anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life, my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital Anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that I worship, anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. In light of that definition, clearly we all struggle with idolatry, but still that doesn't answer the question of why John includes this warning about idolatry here. What does idolatry have to do with these anchors of assurance that he's just been expounding upon? And if you look closely, you'll begin to see, you see, idolatry is what happens in the absence of these assurances. So John's saying, you need to cling to these things or else you will worship idols. If we are not assured of the fact that we are safe in the arms of Jesus, that we are at war with the evil one, but that Jesus has come and opened our eyes, then we will have to cling to some other truth, and that truth is called an idol. And the problem with idolatry is not just that it's sin, but that it robs us of the life that God wants us to experience. I mentioned at the beginning that John wrote this letter to give God's people assurance, but be careful not to miss that this assurance is actually only a means to an end. It's not the end in and of itself. Listen again to the first lines of this book. It says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. John is saying, if you don't cling to these anchors, then you will cling to something else, and that idol will not provide for you the joy that God wants to give you. It's like holding on to an idol is like Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton grabbing a lawn chair in a tornado. It is destined to fail. And God is saying through John that if we cling to these assurances not only will we be secure in the storm, but we will experience the fullness of joy. That's my hope for you, for me, that no matter what the circumstances, that we might find this assurance that brings full joy. I shared with you in the beginning about my family trip to Blowing Rock, how my, over, my daughter overcame her fear. What I didn't mention is that this trail that we were on was not a loop. So we had to come back the way we came. And if I'm honest, I was pretty fearful about how this was going to go because it took a lot to get her to go from A to B. And I didn't know if we were going to go back from B to A. And that was going to be really troublesome. But when we got to the bridge, I honestly couldn't believe what I saw. 
my daughter took the lead and she skipped across the bridge laughing all the way. Because you see, not only did she have a assurance that she was going to be okay, but the assurance gave her enough confidence to enjoy the journey. It set her free to dance. I hope and pray that we, Christ Central, that will cling to these anchors and that as a result, not only will we survive the storm, but that we will feel the freedom to dance in the midst of the storm because our joy is made complete in the one true God. I pray that for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I know that there are people in this room that are wrestling with doubts, that are lacking assurance, and they're just going through the motions. They're just checking the boxes. Father, I know what that feels like. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would drive these truths deeper into their hearts, that they wouldn't just know them in their heads, but they would experience them and taste them in their hearts, that they would know that they are being held by King Jesus, that he is protecting us, and that the only good thing we got going for us is that you have opened our eyes that you have brought us into your family, and we are yours forever. God, make those truths more real for me and for each and every person in this room today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.